four in the church Bibles. Warnings and encouragements. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to Rosemary for reading it. So, um, we're going to keep the reading up on the screen while I go through the first part of it, so you can follow if you haven't got a Bible, but do, do open your Bibles if you've got one. So this is the 14th session, with six more still to come, of our work through Luke's Gospel as we go through this idea of being on mission with Jesus. It's a pretty long haul. Who's been here for 14 weeks? Or listened online? Well done. Excellent. Well done. And today we're moving into Luke chapter 12, uh, this reading we've just heard, but also I'm touching on Luke chapter 19, which is the move, the Palm Sunday story of Jesus moving into Jerusalem. I hope you're finding the series challenging, but also encouraging, and I hope between us all we're learning quite a lot from it. There's a huge amount we can learn from both of these passages, and obviously in the time I've got, I can only do them limited justice. But first, if we may, let's just pray. So, Father, may I speak under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and may we all listen under his wisdom. 
so that what I say and what we all hear will do nothing except build the kingdom of God. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So over the last few months, we've seen Jesus teaching with great authority, overturning conventional wisdom on just about everything. And now, halfway through, or almost halfway through the gospel, he's beginning to prepare the 12 apostles and the other disciples for his ultimate rejection and his betrayal by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the other teachers of the law, the establishment, who don't like much what they're hearing and seeing. And that conflict is beginning to build. Claire stepped in for Sophie last week and looked at this passage in chapter 11, the, half, the, the final half of chapter 11, when Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the establishment, really harshly, a devastating set of statements that challenge their authority, rebukes their behavior, and exposes their hypocrisy. Christians and non-Christians alike sometimes seem to think that Jesus is just a jolly nice chap, meek, mild, well-mannered, all-forgiving. They're wrong to do so. And this passage, amongst others, makes that quite clear. His teaching is tough, and it's demanding. And he's particularly rough with the religious leaders of his day. And this theme of hypocrisy carries into this reading from chapter 12. The large crowds that have been following Jesus around are now in their thousands. I've said before that we can divide these crowds into four groups, really. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, people who are just sort of interested in Jesus, come for a day out, have a picnic, listen to what he's got to say. And then a large number of disciples who actually are interested in following Jesus, are, are, are probably there, we heard, we heard in, the, in the Passover, in the Palm Sunday reading, it's, the, it's, it's largely the disciples who meet Jesus and hold up the palms and so on. And then the final group, the 12 apostles and the disciples who stick with him through thick and thin. And we don't know this crowd of thousands, I suspect there's a mixture of all of those four groups in them. And they're becoming unwieldy, and on the face of it, quite unruly. We're told that they're trampling on one another. Jesus ignores them to begin with, and he turns to this group of disciples, which I think is more than the apostles, more than the twelve, who we tend to think of as the disciples. He turns to them. We don't know whether any of them have been with him at this dinner in chapter 11 where he had berated the Pharisees, but now he turns to them and he warns them, be on your guard against what he calls the yeast of the Pharisees. For those of you who do cooking, and I'm not one of them, uh, yeast, of course, makes things grow and does all sorts of stuff. And Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, which he says is hypocrisy. Jesus knows the depth of human weakness and the games that people play. Hypocrisy is living life with double standards, wearing a mask as we act out a part, a mask which hides what's really going on inside us. But nothing is hidden from God. And Jesus then goes on to tell his disciples that there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Nothing hidden in secret that will not be made known. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner room, he declares, will be proclaimed from the rooftops. He then moves on to this issue of fear. We're told throughout the scriptures not to be afraid. But here Jesus makes a key distinction. 
He differentiates between fearing those who can kill our bodies, but then do nothing more, and fearing the one God the Father, who can not only kill the body, but has the power to throw them into hell. This isn't to frighten them. Jesus talks about them as his friends. He reminds them that they are worth much more than sparrows, who, though small, aren't forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on the disciples' heads, he says, are numbered. God is their loving Father, watching over them. But they need to understand, as do we, that nonetheless he has power well beyond that of earthly authorities. Now, I think this is an obvious reference to what those authorities are going to do to Jesus himself in the coming week. But he also knows the pressures that the disciples will come under from those same authorities when they come after them. And they will. The threat that the establishment can kill the disciples if they stay true to themselves is a serious one. But after acknowledging them by affirming that he will acknowledge them before the angels of God if they stay firm and acknowledge him before men, he also assures them that anyone who does disown him publicly can still find forgiveness. And this is in stark contrast to verse 10, where he also establishes the reality of an unforgivable sin, what he calls blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, he encourages the disciples by adding that they shouldn't be worried when they are confronted by the authorities. When it happens, and it will, they can be confident that the Holy Spirit will provide for their defense, even to giving them the words that they would say or should say. So that's our passage. What can we learn from it? And how does it relate to Palm Sunday and to Easter? First, I want to tackle this issue of the unforgivable sin. Thanks, Derek. We can put the blank up if you would. The unforgivable sin is included in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, as well as Luke. And it comes just after the teachers of the law have been accusing Jesus of using satanic power to drive out demons. Mark adds, or they both add actually, that it is an eternal sin, applying to both this world and the next. And you may wonder, have you broken the unforgivable sin? Over the years, as a lay minister, I've, not often, but quite, quite occasionally, somebody would say to me, I'm worried that I've broken the unforgivable sin. To which my immediate response as Claire reminded me this morning, is if you're worried about it, then you haven't committed it. But actually, let's just explore that a bit more. And I want to start off by setting the context of why Jesus talks about this. Accusing Jesus of doing the devil's work is a seriously malicious slander. But it's not against him that he's worried about. It's against the Holy Spirit. Most of what we know about Satan comes from the New Testament, both from Jesus himself, but from many of the subsequent letters and the book of Revelation. And this battle goes back a long way to when the devil reduced Eden to chaos and evil began to dominate the life of mankind. John tells us in his letter that the whole world lies in the embrace of the devil who has been sinning from the very beginning and that the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Often referred to as Beelzebub, Satan is also called the ruler of this world, 
the prince of evil and the prince of the power of the air. But whatever his name, it's always depicted as being hostile to God, challenging and working to overthrow his purposes, as in Eden, tempting Eve, and in the wilderness, tempting Jesus himself. And time and time again, the devil attempts to divert Jesus from the fight, to stop him going to Jerusalem, to stop him going to the cross, both directly, but also through the efforts of friends, like Peter, who you may remember declared that Jesus was the Christ, but then immediately tries to divert him from heading for Jerusalem and for the cross. And Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. The suggestion that the power behind Jesus was the devil's power was not only ludicrous, but it was deeply blasphemous and indeed unforgivable, which is why Jesus responds so strongly to the slanderous assertions of the religious leadership that he had an evil spirit, that he was in effect working with Satan against God's purposes, purposes led by the Holy Spirit that had descended upon him at his baptism and that filled him day by day and that would eventually, ultimately, enable him to break Satan's power and defeat death. He points out the absurdity of Satan driving out his own evil spirits. Satan's power, he says, if he's opposed to himself and is divided, then he cannot stand. His end, says Jesus, has come. And of course, it has. For what is happening here is that Jesus is entering Satan's territory and robbing him of his power and his authority. And this conflict is central to the whole of the gospel story. And it reaches its climax in the coming days when Jesus enters Jerusalem knowing what is going to be happening over that weekend. The deliberate and ongoing rejection of the work of God, of course, by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the establishment, ends with infamously paying Judas 30 pieces of silver to portray Jesus after Satan, we're told, had entered Judas's heart. So we need to be clear. This isn't the sin of a passing thought or a failure to live out our faith in Christ, like Peter denying that he even knew Jesus. It is knowingly and willfully siding with Satan in an attempt to pervert God's will. A willful unbelief, seen perhaps today in people like Richard Dawkins and other aggressive atheists. Everything, Jesus says, can be forgiven, except siding with the devil against the Holy Spirit in this fight. And those who take Satan's side will, bury, will perish in their sins. Eternal destruction. Ultimately, everyone, all of us, need to make a decision about our chosen destination, to stand for Christ or to turn away from him. But unless, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, you or I are constantly insisting on saying that Jesus has an evil spirit in him, that he was actually working for Satan, and that we publicly argue that his mighty acts of healing, driving out demons, were performed in league with Satan himself, then the answer is very firmly that we have not committed this blasphemy. So hopefully, we can rest secure in knowing that. And knowing that everything else 
is forgivable. But nonetheless, we do need to recognize the reality of hypocrisy on the one hand and disowning Jesus on the other in our own lives. When Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly, the city was stirred to its very foundation. But a strange God was there, the pride of the Pharisees. It was a God that seemed religious and upright. But Jesus compares it to the whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. And the crowds who welcome him enthusiastically, many of them disciples, were soon under pressure to turn their back on him. We don't really know how Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders managed to turn people against Jesus, probably a mixture of bribes and threats. But whatever it was, everyone quickly submitted to it and disowns Jesus. Even the twelve apostles, even Peter, in his bravado in the upper room declaring that he would lay down his life for Jesus, quickly turns that into three refusals to acknowledge that he even knows Jesus. And one of those denials was to just a servant girl. Now it's easy to condemn the pride and the blatant hypocrisy of the Pharisees or Peter's failure, but also all too often, surely the truth is that we too are proud and, hypocr and, and hypocritical. Like when we advise others to do things that we ourselves are patently not prepared to do. Something that church leaders and preachers like me can all be, all too often be guilty of. I was reading yesterday in one of the papers a comment by Giles Fraser, who you may remember was the canon chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral and resigned over a big protest on the, on the steps of St. Paul's some years ago. Giles says this, being a canon of St. Paul's was good for the ego, but precisely because of this insidious temptation to self-importance, it's also a place that contains a great many dangers for the soul, as it certainly did for me, he says. And it's all too easy to forget that one day the hidden thoughts of all of us will be revealed including in today's world, everything we've written in places like the inner rooms of the internet, which many people, of course, think is private and secure, and no one will know that it was us who wrote those nasty comments. We should remember, as Jesus made clear, there is nothing hidden in secret that will not be made known, nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. It's, just, it's just not just Alexis that's listening to our every word, for those of you who've got an Alexis on your dining room table. I remember being told some years ago that one day we may well have to watch a DVD in heaven of all of our thoughts and actions with everyone, in else, everyone else in heaven watching alongside us. I don't know about you, but I don't think I want to be there. It's not a pleasant thought. And we disown Jesus when we are silent about our relationship with him, blending in with the rest of society and accepting the current culture. We, we may want to live Christ-honoring lives, looking for opportunities to share our faith, which of course is what this series is all about, to stand firm for justice and for righteousness. 
But the pressures of the world in which we live are all too real. And the opinion of others can diminish our preparedness to speak out for Christ, to restrict what we are prepared to sacrifice for him. Being judged by what we look like, what we wear, what possessions we own, what positions we hold, what we've achieved, and by what, or more importantly, who we believe in, can all too easily lead us to simply avoid conflict. We, we may want to believe that our true value is, is God's estimate of our, wor- of our worth, not that of our peers, but fear of ridicule can weaken our resolve as we settle for world respectability and a quiet, peaceful life. And fear is the underlying issue, of course. Interestingly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers and the Jewish officials carrying torches, lanterns and weaponry accompany Judas to arrest Jesus, Peter is quite prepared to have a crack at them. He carries a sword and he uses it to cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of Caiaphas, the high priest. So his physical courage is not in doubt. But displaying moral courage is something different, a very different story. Moral courage is more reasoning, deliberate, attitude. It's a perspective that enables us to risk our careers, our happiness, perhaps our whole future on a judgment of what we think is either right or worthwhile. The courage to stand against the tide of opinion, to do what is right even when it's unpopular or goes against the system, whatever that system is. Having the courage of our convictions means standing up to be counted when all around us, others are turning away or not speaking out, even though they know that what is happening is wrong. And that was the reality of Easter Sunday. Moral courage is what Peter lacked in that crucial time in Jerusalem, in the moments when he was tested, challenged, and opposed. And just like Peter, when Jesus calls us to be salt and light in the world, all too often when we ask ourselves how far we should go, the honest, brutal truth is often as far as we're safe, as far as we're in control, as far as the risks are manageable but not as far as challenging the system or convention or potentially offending others in authority. And consequently, in the quiet, secret moments, we may acknowledge that this isn't taking us very far at all. But the wonderful news is that in all of those times, in all of those places, in all of those experiences, they are... Forgiveness is available to us because of Christ's work at Calvary. I don't think we can ever really understand, comprehend, appreciate Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the agony of the man Jesus coming face to face with Satan. And after the encounter in the wilderness, we're told that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Gethsemane was that time. It's a final throw of the dice. 
by Satan. It wasn't death on the cross that Jesus agonized over. He stated emphatically that he came with the very purpose of dying. And he was very confident of getting through that as the Son of God. Satan couldn't touch him there. Rather, his concern was that he may not get through this struggle as the Son of Man, separated from his Father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you deserted me? And he would be just like us. If he could be stopped in his humanity, then he could never be our saviour. It was overcoming this final assault that became the triumph that saved humanity, saved us, saved you, saved me. There's nothing in time or eternity more certain and irrefutable than what Jesus achieved at Calvary. He made it possible for the entire human race to be brought back into a right-standing relationship with the creator of the universe and to receive forgiveness for every sin, every failure, every time we've let him down, except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The cross is the central event in time and eternity and the answer to the problems of both. It wasn't something that just happened to Jesus. His death was not some form of martyrdom. It was a supreme triumph that shook the foundations of hell itself. It was the reason he came. It was his purpose. And his incarnation would have no meaning at all without it. The cross is the gate through which any and every one of us, every individual out there in the wider world, can enter and pass into a place where we can abide in the new life that Christ offers us, restores us, in effect, back to that relationship in Eden before Satan tempted us. God came in flesh as a man in order to take sin away, not to accomplish something for himself. And it can never be fully comprehended, I don't think, through our human experience but the reason that salvation is so easy, so easy to obtain, is because it cost God so much. And at the heart of it is the cross of Christ. When he took upon himself all of our hypocrisies, all of our failures. Which is why when we fail the test of integrity, lack moral courage, when we acknowledge that we've hidden away things that need sorting out, then all we need to do, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 16, is to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Thanks be to God for his victory at Calvary. Amen.